mind by nature is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. So when you reflect over the day's experience and you consider your <coughs> experiences less than totally con total contentment, uh, what kind of suffering did you experience? Impatience, frustration, self-judgment, among others, sleepiness, restlessness, maybe uh, some doubt about practice, about your ability to practice, some speculation of whether it's all worth it or not. These are just little forms of doubt that we face in a, in a day, of, day of practice like this. But in our life, we face additional forms of practice, uh, forms of uh, torment, uh, anxiety, depression, fear, uh, vulnerability. And the Buddha is saying that when we experience any of these torments, it is because the mind is being visited by one of these torments. When we suffer, one of these torments. So, if we could believe that, <clears throat> if we could just suspend our doubt about that, and believe it, maybe for a little while, what would we want to know? What would we need, what would we need to know to begin to work with them? To identify them and to work with them? Because without understanding them, without being able to recognize them, uh, how can we, if you don't know that they're happening, uh, how can you work with them? And as Sayadaw Tejaniya says, it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. So it's not up to us to somehow figure out how to get rid of these uh, unwelcome states of mind. But rather it is through understanding that they will be temporarily removed and eventually uprooted from the mind. These torments include all of the familiar hindrances that you may have heard about in practice. Restlessness, sloth and torpor, attachment, aversion, and doubt. But it also includes many others. But I will use the hindrances as a reference point for our practice here. Now, when Sayadaw Utejaniya says, it's not you who removes the torments, it's wisdom that does that job. There are three elements to this wisdom that's going to do this job. The first is information. We need information. We need the right view. We need to know how to understand these visitors to the mind. Second, we need to use that information intelligently in our practice. We need to think about it, we need to reflect on it, so that we can practice effectively. And thirdly, through our practice of mindfulness, we will come to insightful understanding and intuitive uh, realization of the nature of these visitors to the mind. This first kind of wisdom, this knowledge that we get from reading books, 
listening to speakers is called Suttamaya Panya. It's the wisdom that comes from others' knowledge. When we use that knowledge uh, intelligently with uh, reflecting, thinking about how to practice, thinking about the uh, nature of these visitors, and this is called Chintamaya Panya. Wisdom from thinking through uh, wise reflection. And the insights that come from practicing mindfulness and the understanding that comes from uh, insight, this is called bhavana maya panya, the wisdom that comes from the development of the mind. But all three of these are necessary or essential in our learning how to recognize and work with these torments. So tonight I want to speak about these three kinds of wisdom. So the first is information. We need the right information. We need to have it. We need to know how to think about these visitors of the mind skillfully. So what are they? What are these torments? Well, they are the habitual, uh, reactive, uh, dysfunctional strategies that we use to deal with the challenges of life. When things are a struggle in life, we come up with these strategies, many of which are rooted in attachment, aversion, confusion. And of course, if they are, then those are not very effective strategies for dealing with the challenges. And instead they cause suffering. They often arise in the form of thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, behaviors. And when they get rooted in our behaviors, they start when we're very young. We are conditioned very young to try to get our way by aversion, desire, screaming, just being enraged in one way or another. And it might work temporarily, but we're not very happy. So we should understand that the <coughs> visitors to the mind are always rooted in some form of ignorance or delusion. Now you've noticed this today. For example, when, you know, trying with all good sincerity to remember to recognize the present moment's experience, quite often you will have noticed the mind starts thinking about something. You don't know it's thinking about something. You don't know when it started. You don't know what it's thinking about. You don't know where it's going. Mm -hmm. And while you're lost in that train of thought, you don't know your name, your age, your gender. You don't know your posture. You don't know the time of day. You don't know what you're You don't even know you're on a retreat or sitting down. <laughs> now, we can only say that that is really being quite ignorant. You just, you just, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm just saying the mind doesn't know anything. Isn't it amazing? We're, we're actually trying to be aware, and this still happens. I don't know, I find that really amazing, that the mind just goes off like that, and we don't know it. Mindfulness is essential to begin to recognize these 
trips. <laughs> these, these times when we just, well, we lose our mind, basically. We lose our mind to some fantasy, some thoughts, some commentary, some strategy, some anxiety, something. Now we might think, yeah, well, what's the danger of that? You know, when I'm lost, I'm not being a bad person. I'm not acting out. I'm not, I mean, I'm just kind of taking a break. But actually, when the mind is wandering like that, roaming around unobserved, it is creating a narrative for you, your narrative, the narrative of you, out of your conditioning and reinforcing the beliefs and assumptions and strategies that you have learned in the past. It's not insightful at all. It's just reaffirming, you know, the anxiety, the restlessness, the fear, the doubt, the confusion, the bewilderment, the, that is familiar in our daily life. And you notice when the mind is wandering like that, it's always about you. It's always about you. It's always about me. It's like, I'm never wandering without me being there. <laughs> Just take a look when you see. <clears throat> so, this kind of ignorance obscures the object, meaning it obscures the present moment. We just don't even know it's happening. But there's another kind of delusion that happens, and it occurs when we're generally aware. We know what's, we know what's going on, we know what our experience is, but we misunderstand what's happening. So we know that we're having a conversation with someone, and we think this is what's going on, but we're, we're not understanding it correctly. And so we, we live with some kind of, some level of bewilderment, confusion, uh, ascribing beliefs and assumptions to experiences that they don't really warrant. We're just living in a fantasy. We've got our eyes open, but we're still living in a fantasy. And often the uh, object of our awareness at that time is obscured by delusion. And what this means is when the mind is um, in, uh, visited by one of these torments like attachment. When the mind is visited by attachment, attachment has the characteristic of causing the mind to see only the pleasant aspect of what it's looking at. That's the nature of attachment. It is, it's a filter, and whatever you're looking at, all you can see is how pleasant it is. But if aversion visits the mind, the characteristic of aversion is that it causes the mind to think, to believe, or to only see the unpleasant characteristic of what you're looking at. Now, we've had this experience, you know. When we, you know, when we have a vacation coming up, right? And we make plans for our vacation. We get all excited, and it's like, yeah, we can do this, we can go there, we can do that, and they have good food there, and it's a great place to swim, and the weather's great, yes, yes. You know, while there's excitement, which is a form of attachment, and, you know, kind of clinging and kind of fantasizing about how nice it's going to be, you can see the mind is, well, only seeing the positive, the wholesome, or I say, say the positive, the, the pleasant aspect of this fantasy vacation. 
But then, you know, later in the day when you're tired and you're a little bit worn out and ragged and you start thinking about your vacation, you're thinking, yeah, but, you know, God, the trains are always late there. And, you know, there's a couple... It, it was really expensive last time we went there. And, you know, and you start seeing all the negatives, all the unpleasantness of the same planned vacation. But that's because aversion has entered the mind. So we can have aversion towards the same thing we have attachment to. The mind is infinitely skillful. And the funny thing is, when we're when we're visited when the mind is visited by attachment and we're having all this excitement about it, we believe that's it. And when if the aversion enters the mind and we're looking at the same thing and whatever we're thinking how badly it's going to be, we believe all that too. Isn't that amazing? Because we don't control any of it. That vacation, if it ever happens, is going to be dependent on so many conditions that you have no control over. All your worrying, attachment, excitement, and aversion to it is useless. Because it's not, it's not up to you, really, to make it be in any particular way. You rely on so many other people and places and things and schedules that are completely out of your control. And yet, we think, if it doesn't happen the way I want, I'll be disappointed. Who do we think we are, really? Omnipotent or something? It's <clears throat> not possible. So, these visitors are always rooted in delusion or uh, ignorance. They're also fueled by restlessness. And restlessness, in this case, is the uh, wandering mind. The mind that is thinking without us being aware of it. It's just kind of scheming and strategizing and kind of speculating, you know, often out of sight or wrongly. Now, the other thing about them is that these dysfunctional strategies for dealing with life are so familiar to us, we take them for granted. You know, we, we fully accept, I'm impatient, I'm depressed, I'm aversive. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a desirous type or a sensual type, we say. You know, and, and we have these identities with how we think we are, or how we often, what our default strategy is for dealing with life. So they're so habitual, habitual they arise, meaning they arise so often, and we don't see them, that we kind of have a vague sense of, well, for myself, I seem not to have been born with a patience gene. <laughs> and so a patient, impatience arises quite often in my uh, mind as the default strategy for dealing with everything. Just get impatient. And, I mean, it's not because I choose to do that, it's just habit. And now it's very easy for me to think, well, I'm always impatient. And when we think when we eternalize a momentary experience into always, it's easy then to think, not only am I always impatient, I'm an impatient person. And as soon as, that, as, soon as we get that belief in our mind, I'm an, 
how many patient person, or maybe yours, maybe you have depression, and maybe visit depression visits your mind, and after a few months or weeks or whatever it is, or however many times you see it, then you think I'm a depressed person, I'm an anxious person, I'm a fearful person, and when that belief gets in our mind, it's almost impossible to go, even though. We, we, if instructed, we can notice more moments when we're not depressed or not fearful than when we are. We still believe, I'm a depressed person, I'm a fearful person. Beliefs are really hard to uproot from the mind. <clears throat> These torments they obstruct our living of life fully. Just take fear, for example. Fear of failure, fear of social uh, shame, fear of you know overreaching, fear of not getting what you want, fear of being humiliated, fear of failure. I mean, just how, how just look at how much fear has limited your choices in life. And as we go along in life, the range of what we dare try gets less and less and less because we're fearful. And we don't try that, and we're fearful we don't try that, or that, or that, or that, or that. And pretty soon we're living in this narrow little box of what is safe. <coughs> these hindrances, these torments, obstruct our living life fully. Not only that, they prevent us from finding true happiness and peace. Because so much is kept out of sight. And true happiness and peace, it can only happen if you're open to and allow anything and everything. It's as if these torments cast a cloud of delusion over the mind. They enchant the mind with some narrative of you suffering. But, as Sairu Bandita says, it's like a long-running hallucination. Because it's not true. It's just a story, a distorted story, narrative, that we're telling about ourselves ourselves, entangling the mind in all kinds of suffering. But mindfulness is like a searchlight casting for faults in these clouds of delusion. It's up to mindfulness to see this is a shroud over the mind and to poke holes in it, becoming aware of it. But we should understand that these torments, they visit the mind, they're not accidental. They're not a mistake. They're not somebody else's fault. They arise due to causes and conditions of their own nature. And they're a natural phenomena. They're not unnatural. Nothing about your suffering is unnatural. It arises due to causes and conditions. It is the way things have come to be, even though we may not know 
the causes and conditions that give rise to this kind of torment. And because of that, because they are a lawful arising phenomena, they are the Dharma, and therefore they're an opportunity to awaken, not an obstacle on our path. Because as an opportunity, they can be arrested by mindfulness, they can be replaced by their antidote or wholesome activities, they can be known through awareness, and they can be understood by wisdom. They're just part of the Dharma. So we shouldn't shy away from, we shouldn't turn away from, we shouldn't blame ourselves or anyone else from for the arising of these torments in the mind. Now, we should understand that torments are a mental state. But they condition unpleasantness in the body and the mind. And in the mind, we see that the, the unpleasantness that they condition is, you know, we feel disagreeableness, we feel stress, we feel tension, we feel judgmental. That's pretty obvious. And the unpleasantness in the body is we feel tight, we feel resistant, we feel contracted in so many ways in the body. So, seeing these, or hearing about these, we should understand how the Buddha suggests that we deal with them. Because the Buddha saw suffering, saw the cause of suffering, saw that it was possible to realize the end of suffering, and in the Fourth Noble Truth, offered the path to be developed to overcome these, these torments. And he offered three trainings. And I might have mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again. That this Eightfold Path is really three trainings. The first of which is, as we're practicing here, the uh, precepts. Training in mindfulness of our intention before speaking or acting. And so it's a mindfulness practice. It's not some kind of training that doesn't require mindfulness. It also <coughs> requires mindfulness. Because we need to be able to recognize, remember to recognize, the moment when we're about to speak or about to act and check and see, is my intention in speaking or acting accompanied by one of these torments or not? And if we don't have the space of mind to check that out, we will act out as we have been conditioned, the dysfunctional strategies that we learned from growing up. I told a story earlier at this retreat about being at the Thai Airlines ticket counter and you know, not, not getting my seat on the plane that I had a ticket for because I didn't call to confirm it the day ahead and expressing unmindfully you know, my upsetness, my sense of entitlement, my disappointment, my irritation you know, in very loud and forceful terms. And then having this high ticket agent just remind me, that's not nice. Well, you, you really see, when somebody calls you on your dysfunctional strategy, it's, it's at least humbling. <laughs> 
if not humiliating. But she wasn't humiliating, she was just saying the truth. That's not nice. You know, I knew that, but I'd forgotten that. So this sila, or uh, mindfulness of intention before speaking or acting, is the first of the trainings. And it deals with the torments being acted out transgressively in a way that causes harm to others. And when we're able to practice that level of mindfulness somewhat successfully, we have a better chance of living in harmony with one another. Nevertheless, the mind might still be obsessed with what you want to say and what you want to do, but you're exercising some restraint. So the Buddha recognized that there needed to be a more powerful training, actually more subtle training, to deal with the obsessive manifestation of these torments. So this is when, you know, we're lost in our rant, our internal rant. We don't even know it sometimes. Sometimes we do know it, but we feel justified in it. So it is mindfulness of the present moment that is going to reveal these habits of mind to us. So after 10 years of practice doing retreats like this, I was in Burma as a monk, practicing as a monk. Somewhere in my first or second year, I don't know when, I was doing intensive practice like this, day in, day out. I was doing walking practice on the backside of the dormitory where I was living, a little bungalow where I was living. And I saw in my mind something I'd never seen before. Imagine, I was 35 years old, I saw something in my mind I'd never seen before. Usually I say, if you can see something, if you can see or learn something new on any day, that's good. It was good, but it wasn't pleasant. So what did I see? I was walking, and at some point, I noticed that I had these thoughts in my mind. Oh, poor me. I can't do this. This is too hard. I'm too old. You know? And then, whenever I had that thought, or that kind of thought, I would just collapse. You know, the energy would just... And I would be off on a, oh, poor me, story. And I said, wow, what's that? I never saw that before. I'd arouse my confidence again, keep practicing, and a little while later, oh, poor me. I'm, just, I'm too stupid to do this. And I'd be caught in that story. And when I'm caught in that story, my energy collapses and I'm not paying attention to the present moment. I'm lost in this narrative. Okay, notice that. Come back, start again. Walking, walking, walking. Oh, poor me. I did too many drugs. I can't do this practice. <laughs> Get lost in that fantasy for a while, that memory. And then I'd see that, and I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Back to practice. Walking again. Oh, poor me. I can't do this practice. I didn't do enough drugs. The mind is infinitely creative. But the mind just showing. It would, it would come up with some seemingly logical reason that I couldn't do this practice. And I, I, I finally got it. I was like, wow, I, I, I get caught in this quite a bit. But I'd never seen it before. It took mindfulness, that the, the steadiness of mindfulness, of just being there for 
the most ordinary experiences like breathing in, breathing out, lifting, moving, placing, left, right, left, right, we train the mind on these very benign, ordinary, mundane, familiar, recurring experiences. They're non-threatening. But the power of mind still develops <coughs> when you're being mindful of even insignificant things. So there's no such thing as an insignificant experience that you don't need to be aware of. Because anything, being aware of anything, trains the mind to be just that much more continuous, that much less distractible. So that when these habits of mind that we're not yet familiar with come into view, as they will, mindfulness will see it. And that's how we uncover personality traits, behaviors, assumptions, beliefs that are further down in the mind than on the surface. Because of mindfulness. The strength of mind, the continuity of the mindfulness will reveal it. So I've been talking about, earlier in the I've been talking about the archaeology of the mind. You know, where we start out with the superficial layer of what's going on in the present moment. It's just sitting here. And as we pay attention to the simplicity of just sitting and walking and breathing and stepping and, you know, the other ordinary things, we gradually strengthen the mindfulness so that it can see multiple layers of delusion in the mind. This is how mindfulness works. So this kind of mindfulness, kind of training, um, addresses the... Uh, obsessive uh, manifestation of the torments. So that when you see it, and you notice it, and you see it again, you see it again, you're not caught in it, but you're able to be aware of it. Meaning, you can uh, subjectively own, oh, this, this is what's going on, and you can objectively recognize it. Nevertheless, there are times when, you know, it's hard to be mindful, or we're a little bit forgetful, and these latent tendencies to react with one of these torments sprouts. Now we have lots of unsprouted seeds in our mind. We have lots of potential opportunities to be angry, aversive, self-pity, frustrated, disappointed, anxious, depressed. And if we're not careful, they will sprout in time. So the Buddha recognized that this would take a very powerful, yet a very subtle practice to be able to uproot the latent tendencies in the mind. We can keep them out of sight if we're being mindful. But we can't always remember to be mindful. And so, they rise again. So it is the practice of vipassana, or insight, that addresses latent, well, misunderstandings. We still resort to these ways because we misunderstand their nature. We think they're going to be effective. We think they're an effective strategy for dealing with conditions in life. We don't yet understand them. And so we still resort to them. So it's insight that is going to observe and understand their nature in a way that we will no longer 
see them as an option for a strategy dealing with difficulties in life. So this is this is what we need to know. This is the information we need to know to begin to work with these uh, visitors, these tormenting visitors to the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.